Well, how about our Psalm 1 kids and Chi Alpha? Thank you so much, boys and girls. My youth for leading us in worship today, and uh, thank you for uh, Allison and all of her team, and Christy for leading and encouraging these little ones to, uh, to lead us in worship. Well, you may remember that uh, when we began this conversation for the Easter season, that I shared with you that one of our goals, one of our desires, one of our hopes is for us to cultivate a culture of evangelistic sensitivity. That's our, our desire here at First Baptist. And what that means is, is that we want you to, first of all, to um, be in prayer for opportunities to share a word about your faith, a word about the gospel. And that as you pray for that, that you look for opportunities for that to take place so that you might have the chance to share a word about Jesus and you listen to the Spirit and you do it in a way that's indigenous to who you are um, and you don't necessarily want to do it in a way that's forced or um, that seems unnatural to you because God has, has given all of us different abilities. You know, uh, the other day I was at a restaurant and I was just, uh, I was paying at the cashier and and he just said something, I was in a suit that day, and he said, well, you look really nice today, and you know, in the, since you're wearing this suit. And I said, well, you know, I wear a suit often. And he said, really, does your job require it? I said, you know, actually it does. And he said, is that right? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, what do you do? I said, well, actually, I'm a, I'm a Baptist pastor. And he kind of raised his eyebrows, and he said, oh, really? I said, yeah. And I said, you know, those are the best kind. <laughs> and... Well, then that just kind of opened the door for a conversation where I invited him to church. And a couple of weeks ago, and I haven't seen him yet uh, here, and he may have come for all I know, but I haven't seen him. But we had a chance to talk a little bit about uh, my faith. I didn't take all day. The man was working, and there were other things to do. But we at least had an opening and an opportunity just to share a quick word with someone. And so that's, that's really how it starts. There are other times, as you know, where you have an opportunity to have more lengthy conversation, and you have an opportunity to really actually explain the gospel. But sometimes it's just just a little word, and more often than not, by the time someone comes to know Christ, they've had numerous encounters like that along the way. Just, just little snippets, little opportunities for someone to speak a word into their life. And so I would encourage you to take advantage of those. So, you know that uh, one of the things that we started last Sunday here to help us all do that is this Easter, Why Does It Matter campaign or endeavor or ministry. And what we're trying to do is share the good news of the gospel in eight different languages. And I've had several of you mention to me, you've, you've put the sign in your yard, and I'm grateful for that. I've seen the signs around. I've made my round, way around Arlington. And, and so just so you know, the big circle that's on that sign is a QR code. And so if people will just take their phone and just turn their camera on and hover it over that sign, it will give them a, uh, a website to go to. And uh, when they go to that website, there's a landing page there that has both written information as well as videos in eight different languages to share the gospel with people. And uh, right now, um, we are averaging about 50 downloads a day. That's what's happening uh, across our city. And so we really just gotten started. But uh, I've, I have one in my yard. Several people said, well, you know, when people are driving their cars by, they can't stop and 
and do that. That may be true, but we have a lot of walkers in our neighborhood, and so we've had folks stop and look at it, and, and so I've noticed them around town, and we've had a couple of folks who've actually inquired, asking more questions about it all. So the point is, we're just trying to, to share the good news of the gospel. And so I encourage you to pray for that endeavor, and let's see what God does as multiple people right now are at least having an opportunity to hear and read what Easter is all about. You know, 2.3 billion people on planet Earth will celebrate Easter this year. It's about a third of the world's population. So it obviously matters. There are that many people across our world. And, and so that's how I start the video that I share. It must matter to have that many people across the world celebrating it. So it's good news, and I trust that God will continue to help us to share it. So with that said, let's continue our conversation uh, here on Sunday morning. You know, we, are, we have been focused on Romans 8, and so I want us to look again at Romans 8 this morning. I've entitled this message, All Things, and we'll begin in Romans 8, verse 26, and we'll read through verse 30, some very familiar um, words from this particular page in our Bible. So let's hear what Paul has to say this morning in this text. In the same way, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Well, this morning, I, <clears throat> I want to remind you that today is Palm Sunday. And you may remember that our journey for Easter actually began in this room back on March the 2nd, where we had an Ash Wednesday service. There were several hundred of you here that night. And you may remember that last year, after Palm Sunday, Kurt Grice gathered up all the palm fronds, and he kept them this entire year. And the week before Ash Wednesday, uh, Barry got all of those and took them to his house, and in his shop, he burned them and, and then brought the ashes back to Kurt and Katie and I. And then we prepared those ashes, first time we've ever done that, um, at least since I've been your pastor. And so we gather here on that Ash Wednesday service, and as I said, there were hundreds of you here that night, and uh, we had a service of reflection, uh, a service of repentance, a service of commitment, a service of what I would just consider humility, and then several hundred of you came forward that night, and we actually anointed you in the sign of the cross with these ashes, participating in a very ancient practice that goes all the way back to the Old Testament when God's people would mark themselves as a sign of repentance. They would cover themselves sometimes with, with ashes. It was just a reminder of their, their brokenness and their humility. And we shared that message to everyone who came forward that night, repent and believe the good news of the gospel. 
We looked at Romans 3 where Paul addresses our brokenness and our failure. And so now we've come all the way to Holy Week. And here we are on Palm Sunday. And as I mentioned a moment ago, Romans 8, but also Luke's gospel has been our guide during the Easter season. Luke will also be our guide for the Christmas season, the Advent season this year as a church. And so again, we will come together at the end of this week on Good Friday, and we will be reminded, I hope you'll be here for that service that night, it's going to be a powerful time of worship, and we'll be reminded of the cost of our salvation. We'll share in the Lord's Supper together. It'll be a a very powerful time of reflection for us as we prepare ourselves for next Sunday morning, which will be Easter Sunday. Our theme for this season has been redeem. And as you know, we've chosen this page in our Bibles. Remember I told you that uh, N.T. Wright, this theologian, he um, is a a professor, writer in England, and uh, one of the profound influences on my life. He has a habit of asking his students, if if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only have three or four pages of the Bible, which ones would you choose? And I've thought about that question a lot, and uh, this is one of the pages that I would choose. It is theologically rich, Romans 8. It's It's a dense text, and it is where Paul outlines and explores the holistic nature of God's redemptive work in all of his creation. And it is, a, it is a powerful masterpiece. So we've been making our way through it and we've come all the way to verse 26. So here's what I'd like for us to do today. Let's continue our conversation and, and see if we can hear what God is saying to us through this text this morning. So here's where we'll begin. And it really is a connection to last Sunday's sermon as I concluded last Sunday's sermon. Let's begin with what Paul says about the presence of God. And what Paul says in this text is is that God's spirit is engaged in our everyday lives, our daily lives in practical and meaningful ways. So once you become a Christian, you remember we've talked about this already, the Holy Spirit seals you into the family of God. As a matter of fact, whenever you make the decision to follow Christ, the Holy Spirit actually baptizes you into the family of God, and you become a child of God. The Holy Spirit equips you so that you can serve God in his family. The Holy Spirit empowers you so that you can live the life that God would have you to live. And the Holy Spirit fills you on a daily basis so that you can find guidance and encouragement and comfort. So the role of the Holy Spirit is the actual presence of God in your life every day. And this very text helps us understand a little bit more about the Holy Spirit's role in our life. This text reveals the intimate, deep ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at what what Paul says. Look at verse 26. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So I love that Paul says us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. So Paul himself knew what a challenge it is to live this Christian life. It's not easy to live the Christian life because we are swimming upstream in almost every respect. We're doing battle with ourselves. We're battling our own sinful nature. We're battling the sinful nature of the people who are around us. 
We're, we're swimming sometimes in, a, in just a sea of brokenness and, and faulty perceptions of God. And many times we are awash in a culture that does not understand the deep things of the Spirit. And so Paul acknowledges that even in his day, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Here's one of the ways the Holy Spirit helps you every day, whether you realize it or not. The Holy Spirit helps you in your prayers. And that's exactly what Paul says. When you look at this text, Paul says, I love that he puts it this way. We don't even know how we should pray. And what Paul is acknowledging is, is that so often even our prayers are misplaced. Because sometimes our prayers are just so selfishly motivated. Here's the good news. God does not answer all of your prayers. Aren't you glad? Think about some of the stuff you've prayed for. I'm mean, gonna think about it in my life, some of the things I've asked God to do for me. So focused on, on my own selfish view of the world. And so Paul acknowledges that. He says, we, we don't even know how we ought to pray. We, we need help. And so guess what the Holy Spirit does? He intervenes on our behalf. And Paul says, there are even sometimes when what's going on in our life is so deep, it is so challenging, we can't even put it into words and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And he, he provides ministry to us even when we can't come up with the words and even in those groaning times, the Spirit interprets our prayers before the Father. Wow, what a, what a precious gift God has given you. When you find yourself in the lowest time in your life. And there are some of you right now that some of you recently have just been through some really hard times. We have people in our church that have gone through some very challenging, difficult times. Times where they felt overwhelmed and may not even known how to voice a prayer. It's in those moments where God intersects our lives and he intercedes on our behalf through his spirit. And he voices those prayers for us even though they're wordless to us. What a, what a beautiful gift. You know, years ago when I was in seminary, Dr. McGorman, one of my favorite professors, told us about preaching a, a, a revival service on a mission trip. And he said it was his, one of the first times he had ever had to have a translator. And so he, he said he, would, he was preaching and he had to get into the rhythm of allowing the translator to preach alongside him. And he said, when the service was over, one of the men in the congregation came up to him and said, you know, uh, Dr. McGowan, I want to thank you. He said, I'm, I'm bilingual. I, I speak both English and Spanish. And Dr. McGowan said, well, that's great. And he said, I just want to tell you, the guy that was preaching today in Spanish preached a better sermon than you did in English. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. McGorman told us, and that's how it is with the Holy Spirit. He prays better prayers than we do. He, he, he steps in sometimes and he takes whatever that is inside of us and translates it even before the Father. What a, what a gift. And notice what else the Spirit of God does. Look at verse 27. He searches our hearts. He intercedes for us. And here's where he's guiding us in accordance with the will of God. So when you're, when you're struggling to try to find the will of God, ask for the Spirit's help. He is an expert in the will of God and he searches your heart and he knows the mind of God. And so the spirit of God guides us in accordance with the will of God. Because you see, I don't need any guidance 
toward my own will. I, I, Dennis R. Wiles, I am the resident expert of my own will. I know what I want. I don't need any coaching. I don't need to take a class on it. I don't need to go to a seminar. I know my will. But I need help with God's will. And guess what God's done? He's given us his presence through his spirit to seek his will. What a, what a beautiful insight from Paul. But then I want you to notice verse 28. This is probably one of the most famous verses in all of Paul's writings. And it has to do with what I would just call the purposes of God. And what Paul tells us here is, is that God can work in the midst of all things. Romans 8, 28. <clears throat> Here's what I would say about this text. First of all, we live in a broken, fallen world. And every day we're reminded of it. Paul's already told us in this text right before this one, we read last Sunday, even creation has been affected by sin. True? Y'all remember that conversation last week? Even creation is broken. It's out of sorts. And so it's groaning for a time of redemption, a, a, a change, if you will. And so Paul acknowledges that. So that's the world we live in. So consequently, in this world, bad things happen. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. That means that you can live your life as best you know how to live it. You can be obedient to God as best you know how. You can do the very best you know. And guess what? You can still experience calamity and tragedy. True? It's, it's just part and parcel of living in the world we live in because the world is broken. So there are wars and disease and death and violence, abuse and neglect. That's just, that is just a part of what it means to live in a broken world. Now here's what I want you to notice Paul does not say. Look at verse 28. Paul does not say God causes all bad things to happen. That's not what he says. And he doesn't say that all bad things can actually become good things and you ought to be grateful for all the bad things. If you're the kind of person that's grateful for all the bad things in your life, you're just weird. <laughs> We're not grateful for all the bad things. You know when the Bible says give thanks in all things, what that means is you're just thanking God that he's there with you. But you don't have to thank him for the calamity, the tragedy. You know, bad things are going to happen. But here's what he says. God is working a purpose, he says in verse 28, and he's working that purpose even through all things. And because of that, ultimately, God's good will triumph. That's really what Paul is saying. He's not saying that, that you're always going to see a reason for why bad things happen. Sometimes we want to know that. Why did this happen? We, we want that one-to-one -one ratio. What's the reason for this? Well, we may never know the reason for it. That, that's not the point. It's the purpose of God that is at work and at play in our world, even in the midst of all the brokenness and the sorrow and the tragedy. There's still the thread of God's purpose that's being woven into the fabric of everything that's happening. And so God somehow, in his sovereignty and grace, he can take all that's bad and somehow still accomplish his purpose through the midst of it, in the midst of it, that's why you can say that ultimately good is going to win. And that's what Paul is saying here. So, for example, you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? One of, one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is Joseph. When Joseph is sold into slavery, would we not all agree that was a bad thing? 
When, when his brothers beat him up and threw him into the pit, wouldn't we all agree? That was a bad thing. When Joseph gets put in prison unjustly by Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, wouldn't we all agree? This is a bad thing. So bad things are happening to Joseph. And it's all at the hands of his brothers. Now, you can say Joseph is culpable because he was a little bit braggy. True? He'd say, man, I've had some great dreams, dreaming about all of y'all. One of these days, y'all gonna be bowing down to me. Awesome. Okay, well, that may not be the best way to treat your older brothers. <clears throat> I've lived my whole life as a younger brother. I know how mean and deceitful and disastrous behavior can result from older brothers. Trust me, I know exactly what it's like. So he's a little bit culpable, but wouldn't we agree, though, that Joseph was an honorable guy as he grew up, and these things that were happening to him were bad things, not because of his sin, it's just because he lived in a broken world. That's why I love Genesis 50. You get to Genesis 50, and Joseph's at the end of his life, and he's about to die. And remember what he told his brothers in verse 20? His brothers are a little bit worried about what's going to happen after he dies, and he says, you know, you intended this for harm. But look what God's done with it. God let me interpret Pharaoh's dream. And because I interpreted Pharaoh's dream, we prepared for the great famine. And because we prepared for the great famine, a lot of people lived. So you intended all this for harm, but guess what God did with it? He did good with it. That, that's, that's Romans 8, 28. It wasn't good what Joseph went through. Can you imagine being a Jew at that time in a prison <clears throat> in Egypt? Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine the fear that Joseph had in a caravan being, being traded off and carted off to Egypt? And yet, in the spite of all that, God still worked good. You know, in Acts 8, the Bible says that persecution took place in Jerusalem. And when the persecution happened in Jerusalem, guess what the Christians in Jerusalem did? Do you remember what the Bible says? They, they scattered. Okay, we would all agree persecution was not good. But guess what happened? Those Christians began to scatter out and fan out across the ancient world. Guess what they took with them? The gospel. And so the gospel was spread, and Luke records it. Acts 11, Barnabas gets to Antioch. And when he gets there, he sees everything that God is doing, and he says to himself, I need to go get Saul of Tarsus and bring him here. Now, Barnabas was a leader in the church at Jerusalem Paul had already tried to live in Jerusalem, but he was too radical for Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't ready for Paul. Paul, Paul was an apologist. And so Paul couldn't stay in Jerusalem. People were afraid they were gonna kill Paul. Do y'all remember this story? But yet in Antioch, somehow, that was an open door for Paul. So even though it was not good that Paul couldn't be in Jerusalem, God still took that and he ultimately used it for his glory. It's amazing how God does these things. I was been reading a, a missionary right now who's working in Eastern Europe. Do you know where the largest percentage of evangelical Christians live in Europe? You know what country? The largest percentage of evangelical Christians. You know what country they live in? Ukraine. And right now, this missionary tells us they're estimating about 100,000 evangelical Christians have fanned out all over Europe. Isn't that interesting? Now, would we all agree that the war in the Ukraine is bad? Would we not? 
Of course it is. The atrocities. We can't even hardly watch it. But I don't know how God might be using some of these Ukrainian evangelical Christians who are finding their way all across Europe right now. They're taking their story with them. You see, that's why we've got to wait to the very end to really see how this all works out. <laughs> it's going to take a little while to work this one out. And so, but can you imagine what it's going to be like one day when all of a sudden God makes it all evident before us and then we go, oh my goodness, look at that. Okay, that's Romans 8, 28. <laughs> God took all of this, all this mess, all this brokenness, all these these tragedies, all this, all this suffering, and look how God ultimately used it for his glory and accomplished his purpose. We may not ever understand the reason for it, but here's what we know. God's purpose is redemption, and that's what's happening right now. He's using things for his redemptive purpose. Only God. And I want you to notice what it says. Look at verse 28. All things. God is using all things for his purpose. Praise his name today. Now, one other note about this text. It's a word about providence. And I want you to look at it with me, verses 29 and 30. Because here's what I hear Paul saying. God is at work within us. He's shaping us. He's conforming us to the image of his son. See, when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ, something powerful begins to happen in you. Something that you can never do on your own. Something that you don't have the wherewithal to accomplish. Something you just, you just don't have the strength, the resiliency, and the power to address on your own. But God is doing something in you. Now you partner with him. And you participate with him. That's how it works. You, you've got to be a part of what God is doing. It reminds me years ago of when I was pastoring in Mertens and one of our farmers purchased a new piece of property and um, he took me out there one day to look at it. And I mean, it was beautiful. He had just got it ready to be, to be cultivated, to plant and all that. And I told him, I said, man, this is some beautiful piece of property. I bet you loved having, loved being able to get this. He said, oh, I said, I, I said, God really provided for you. He said, yeah, he did. He said, but you should have seen this property when God had it all by himself. It was terrible. <laughs> but he and I together, we're working something out. And I sat there and thought about that. Well, that's how it is. <laughs> he and I together. Well, that, that's what's going on with you. You and him together right now. Here's what's going on. You're, you're working on something, but you can't do it on your own. And he's not going to do it without you. And so it's him changing you. It's him shaping you. He's not just sitting idly by. He's not going to leave you alone. He's not going to let you be. He's just not. He loves you too much. He's not going to let you have all the rough edges. He's not going to let you just excuse everything away. He's working in you. That's what he's doing. So look at this text, y'all. Look at verse 29. This, this text is just filled with theological terms that cause some people great pause. Okay? So let's look at these terms. Verse 29. Foreknew. For those God foreknew, there's God's foreknowledge. Predestined. Now, that's a scary word for many. I see that word. It's either a scary word or a happy word. It depends on your perspective. Conformed, image, firstborn, predestined, 
called, justified, glorified. Every one of those words are rich theological words. They all have profound meaning. Now, some people read verses 29 and 30, and here's what they see. They see God individually electing people for salvation so that they might be conformed to the image of God according to his foreknowledge. And so the whole understanding of individual election, predestination, if you will, if you want to call it that. Some people read this text and that's what they see. Does that make sense? That's how some people read this text, okay? That is not how I read this text. It's not what I see in this text. Um, you know, the whole understanding of the Calvinistic approach to theology, sometimes it's referred to as the reformed view. The reason that word is used is because it's tied to the age of the reformers, people like John Calvin and John Knox and others. It's reformed theology. We have numerous people in our church who were reformed in their view, certainly all across Christendom. The Presbyterian church is the heir of John Calvin's teaching. Sometimes it's referred to as Calvinism. Y'all are familiar with this, right? And there are five, generally five points that are associated with Calvinism. And we use the acronym TULIP, makes it easy to remember. T is total depravity. That means that everybody's born a sinner, separated from God, depraved, unable to respond to God on their own. U, unconditional election. From texts like this, God has chosen individuals for the purpose of salvation. L, limited atonement. Jesus only died for those who are elect. I, irresistible grace. Once God calls you, you can't refuse him. And P, perseverance of the saints. Once you receive this gift, you can't lose it. In other words, it lasts forever. So tulip, does that make sense? I am a clipped tulip. Now, some people say you can't do that. And I look at myself in the mirror every day. Yes, you can. Some people think it's irrational. It's not irrational. You and I have the responsibility of reading the scripture and do the very best we can with it. Some of my very best friends, some of the professors who profoundly impacted my life are five-point Calvinists. And I have a great deal of respect for them, and I certainly do for John Calvin. But I have to wrestle with the scripture myself. I have to decide for myself what do I believe about all this. So for me, I accept total depravity and perseverance in the saints. But I don't believe in unconditional election. I don't believe in uh, limited atonement. And I don't believe in irresistible grace. So here's what I believe this text is teaching. Are y'all still with me? Because I, I, I think it's important for you to know what your pastor believes. Okay? And this is what I believe. So some people say, well, then you're the opposite of Calvinists. Uh, no, I'm not. I just said I'm a clipped tulip, okay? I'm not the opposite of it. I don't believe people are born uh, without sin. I also don't believe you can lose your salvation. So I do hold on to those two tenets. But here's what I think this text is teaching. I don't see this text referring to individual election. I see this as categorical election. In other words, what I see this text teaching us is that God is redeeming a people, which is what he's always done. And the people that God redeems he knew that people were going to respond to this gospel. And here's the purpose behind the redemptive activity of God. What is it that God is doing? What is God trying to accomplish in the category of the saints? In other words, all the elect, 
all the people of God who've chosen to respond to the gospel. All of us are a part of God's chosen people once we make the decision to follow Christ because God has called a people, the church. What's God's intent? So regardless of whether you believe in individual election or you don't like me, we all agree on this. Look at what he says in verse 29. He says, those that God foreknew, he is predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's what's happening. That's what God's doing in the church. That's what he's doing in you and in me. He is morphing us. That's the Greek word there. He is shaping us. He is changing us. And notice, we were created in the image of God, but we're broken, fallen creatures. Remember, we fall short of the glory of God. So what's God doing? He's restoring something in you, and he's trying to conform you to the image of his son so that Jesus will be the firstborn. Jesus will be our oldest brother. We will all be like him. We will be shaped toward him. We will be responsive toward him so that our lives might reflect him. And notice this, those that he's predestined, those that he's called now, that word called, in other words, it's, it means that God has placed something on your life when you're a Christian. It's a calling from God. And notice what he does through the grace of God, the power of God, the providence of God. He justifies you. He declares you innocent before God. He redeems you and rescues you from your sin. And then he restores what's broken in you. And what's broken in you? Your ability to reflect the glory of God. And so what does he accomplish in the life of a Christian? He glorifies us. We're glorified by him. And so this text, powerful, rich, deep, meaningful, regardless of where you stand on the issue of election, the beauty of it cannot be missed. Here's what God is doing in and through his people. He is redeeming every part of us so that we will look like Jesus. And he's using all things to do it. When I was in seminary, I went to seminary with a, an evangelist. His name was John Moldovan. And he was from Romania. And one day in class, he gave us his testimony. And it was just a reminder to me of this whole text right here. He was arrested, brought into the authorities in Romania. He was persecuted. He was beaten. He was told that his wife and daughters were already dead. And uh, it was a sad, tragic time for him. He had a certain interrogator. And when he came into the jail, they noticed he had this, this little book. And he asked if he could keep it. They let him keep it. It was a New Testament. And so he said the interrogator would come in all along and he would, he would take that book away from John. He'd say, if you'll take this book and just denounce it and declare your loyalty to the Communist Party, we'll let you go home. John wouldn't do it. John said, I, I can't do that because this, this book is the truth and I put my life on it. And this interrogator would say, so in other words, you, 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 you will stay here and be persecuted just because of what you believe about this book. Yes, in other words, you, you'll let us beat you, which they had been beating. And finally, John said, yes. In other words, you will let us kill you. Yes. And finally, one day, the interrogator said, I don't understand this, John. Why, why are you so adamant about this? And John said, here's what you can do. You can kill my wife. You can kill my children. You can kill me. And he pulled that little New Testament. And he said, but what you can't do is take what this gospel's given me. You can't take it. See, it's not, it's not in your power to take it. So you think you have control over me. And he said, here's what's sad. I'm the only one in this prison who's free. You're all in jail. You just don't know it. So finally the day came when they let John go. He was on his way out and the interrogator stopped him. And he said, I'm still amazed by you. And John said, well, it's because of what God has done in me through Jesus. And as John turned to walk out the door, the interrogator said, I have one more question. And John turned around and he said, could I have that book? 
And John Moldovan said, I have no idea what happened to that man, but I turned around and I gave him the most precious thing I knew to give him, the gospel. God works in all things, doesn't he? All things to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is redemption, justification, glorification, so that we all might look like Jesus. Wow. May it be so in your life and mine. Let's pray together. Well, Father, today we are grateful for this gospel, and it is good news. And we thank you that we have it, that it shaped our lives, set us free, redeemed us from sin, delivered us from brokenness, and offered us hope. And we thank you for it. And God, we also know there are many who need to hear it, many who need to know it, many who need to experience the freedom that it offers. So we pray that we'll be faithful in sharing this good news and that when we share it, it'll take root in people's lives and they will embrace this Savior that we celebrate this week. And we pray in his name, amen.